The final week of Jesus' life happens in darkness. Jesus and his disciples have the Last Supper at night. His extreme turmoil in the Garden of Gethsemane happens in the darkness. Then Jesus gets dragged to a sham trial before the Jews in darkness. Then he is put on a cross. And at the time of day when it should be the brightest, darkness covers the entire land. The darkness is both literal and metaphorical. Jesus experiences total inner darkness for you and for me. When Jesus is taken off the cross, it is nighttime. And that night and the following Saturday were the darkest days in human history. But today, in Mark's gospel, it's Sunday. And though the last week has been pitch black, today the light breaks in. Today, the Son of God rises. Today, we come to the very final chapter in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. If you've been with us for the last several months, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's Gospel. And today we come to the world-changing conclusion. And a quick note, we're going to read verses 1 through 20, even though I know there is a note in your Bible that says verses 9 through 20 were not found in the earliest manuscripts. The reason we're going to read all 20 verses is because I personally believe all of those verses are inspired by God. And the reason I think that is because the early church fathers thought that they were. So we actually have sermons from every church father on these verses. Uh, and so that's good enough for me. I'm going to count these verses, okay? So we are going to read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 20, the verses that change the world. Let's read them together. If you don't have your Bible with you, they'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. 
These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is God's word. And this text shows us three world-changing truths about the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, it shows us the shock of resurrection. The shock of resurrection. The Christian message is the most shocking message in the history of the world. Christianity claims that God Almighty became a human baby. In fact, became one human cell. Then Christianity says that God Almighty lived among us as one of us, and that God died by crucifixion, and that God rose from the dead. That is what we call crazy talk. That's crazy talk. It's ridiculous. You're telling me God became a human baby. You're telling me God died by crucifixion and God rose from the dead. It's absurd. But you know, in the decades before and after Christ, there were lots of messianic movements in Israel. A lot of men claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah before and after Jesus. And in virtually every case, the messianic leader was killed. He was put down. And in every case where the leader was killed, the movement ended right then and there. And everyone just went home. Why? Because the leader was dead. He'd been defeated. It's over, right? That means he's not the Messiah. And so we can go home and find someone else. And that's a perfectly reasonable assumption, right? The leader's defeated. He's dead, it's over. Once the leader dies, that's the end of it. But not with this movement. One and only one messianic movement in the first century did not collapse after the leader died. And not only did it not collapse, just over 200 years later, it completely took over the Roman Empire. And today is by far the world's largest religion. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain thousands and thousands of Jews and Romans in the first century upon hearing the message that God was crucified and that God rose from the dead, they abandoned their previous pagan religions, the Jews abandoned their long Jewish heritage and immediately converted to Christianity. How do you explain that? 
Skeptics have always had a tough time answering that question. I actually have a book in my office that is, it's actually a written debate on the resurrection of Jesus uh, between an atheist scholar and Dr. William Lane Craig, who's a Christian scholar. And at the end of the book, at the end of the debate, the atheist scholar admits that something truly radical must have happened in order to change the beliefs of the Jewish disciples and so many Jewish citizens. Something radical must have happened. He admits that. And Dr. William Lane Craig responds by saying, okay, if you're willing to admit that something truly radical happened, why can't you just go with the radical thing the disciples themselves said happened? Namely, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so look, if you're a skeptic here today, I get it. I used to be a skeptic myself. This message is shocking. I realize that. Dead people are supposed to stay dead. Okay, I get it. This is hard to believe. Even though, I mean, think about it. Even though Jesus himself had predicted his own death and resurrection multiple times, none of his followers believed it. We saw in our text today over and over again, right? Look at verse 13. It says, um, they returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Over and over again, we see the disciples and the followers of Jesus not believing that he'd been risen, even though he told them that he was going to rise from the dead. I mean, why do you think the women here are so shocked to find the tomb stone rolled away? The women had brought spices. Did you catch that? To the tomb. You know why they brought spices? Because they assumed Jesus' body was rotting. That's why they brought spices. They had zero expectation of a resurrection. Zero. So if you're a skeptic here, I get it. <laughs> this is hard to believe. But you know what? It's also really hard to believe that a little band of fishermen led by a backwoods preacher could convert thousands of Jews and Romans in the first century and go on to become the world's largest and most influential religion. Jesus should at most, at most be a very tiny footnote in history. Very, very tiny. But instead, he is by far history's most famous person. As shocking as it might be, the most logical way to explain this is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's point number one, the shock of resurrection. Number two, the grace of resurrection. Look at verse seven, the grace of resurrection. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. If you've never failed God, this sermon is not for you. If you don't have a sin problem, here today. This sermon is not for you. But if you've ever promised God something but not done it, if you've ever resolved to overcome some besetting sin only to blow it repeatedly, if you're plagued with guilt over sins that have defeated you, then today Mark gives you the scandalous grace of the resurrection. 
I hope you see just how remarkable verse 7 is. It's amazing. Maybe it will become more incredible to you when you consider what it doesn't say. What Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say to the women, go tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that I might meet them in Galilee if they bow and grovel at my feet and beg for my forgiveness. That's not, that's not what he says, is it? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't work the way you and I work. You and I say to those who betray us, you know, if you repent, if you grovel, I might think about forgiving you. But Jesus says, I completely forgive you first. Unconditional forgiveness. And then, of course, that naturally leads us to repentance. Automatically. What an amazing word of grace. But you know, there's an even more amazing word of grace here in verse 7. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? It's the little, two little words, and Peter. Did you see that? And Peter. The angel at the empty tomb tells the women, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, why did the angel add Peter's name? Why not just say the disciples? You know why. You know why. You've heard the story of Peter. Peter, who had proudly boasted of his allegiance to Christ, had instead failed Christ worse than any of the other disciples had failed him. Oh, they all failed him, but none like Peter. And so imagine this scene with me. The women discover the empty tomb, speak with a man who is surely an angel, and they go to report the news to the disciples. And when they burst in the room, there is Peter slumped over in the corner, in the gloom of depression. Yes, all the disciples failed Jesus, but none of them like Peter did. Peter had shockingly and publicly both denied and cursed Jesus. And that's after he had sworn to Jesus that he would never leave his side. But when the women tell them the story and say, the angel told us to come tell the disciples and Peter. Depressed Peter over in the corner suddenly perks his head up and says, wait, wait, what did you say? What did you say? Are you sure the angel said, and Peter? Tell me again, what were the angel's exact words? You see, if the angel had just said, Jesus wants to see his disciples, then when the women give them that message, Peter would have said, you guys go. You guys go. I'll stay here. He doesn't want to see me. 
I know he doesn't. Not after what I've done. But Jesus knows good and well how torn up Peter is in this moment. And so Jesus specifically says, go tell Peter, I want to see him. You go tell Peter, I love him. You go tell Peter, I forgive him. Go tell him that he's still my friend. Go tell him. You see, scholars tell us that Mark's gospel was written under Peter's influence. And so I picture this. I picture Mark, quill in hand, writing this gospel. And I picture him writing this 16th chapter. And he writes, go tell his disciples. And I imagine Peter over his shoulder saying, and Peter... And Peter, please mark my son. Please make sure to write, and Peter. And Peter. Jesus spent his entire ministry just recklessly throwing out forgiveness to sinners. Recklessly. Jesus told the prostitute who anointed him with oil, your sins are forgiven. So men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man. Jesus said to the man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Some friends dug through the ceiling to lower their crippled friend down to Jesus. And as they were lowering him down, Jesus smiled and said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. But you know what? If Jesus is just a man, if he's just a good teacher, if he's just an ethical prophet, you are still dead in your sins. You're dead. Because Jesus has no authority to forgive them. But if Jesus died for you and Jesus rose from the dead, then all of his radical claims to divinity are true. They're true. If Jesus is resurrected, then when he declares the forgiveness of your sins, and my friends, he does. <laughs> he does. When he declares the forgiveness of your sins, you might as well forget about your sins. Forget about them. They're done. <laughs> They're over. They're dead. Why? Because the resurrected king of the universe says they are. And if he says your sins are dead, then you can take that to the bank, my friends. Your sins are done. You are forgiven in Christ. That brings us to our last point. Point number three, the hope of resurrection. The hope of resurrection. Look at verse 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Why is it so hard for us to face poverty, loneliness, ridicule, suffering, and death? Why is it so hard for us to face those things? It's so hard for us to face those things 
Because we believe that this world is the only world we're ever going to have. We feel like this money is the only money we're ever going to have. That this body is the only body we're ever going to have. These friends are the only friends we're ever going to have. Etc., etc. But Jesus' resurrection is not a promise that, oh, someday you'll go to heaven and get a consolation prize for all the things you've lost on earth. No. Heaven is not a consolation prize. Jesus' resurrection tells us that God is going to renew this material world. This one. The one we're in right now. After all, the resurrected Christ still has the scars of crucifixion in his hands. He still eats with his friends after the resurrection. He still gives Peter a giant bear hug when he sees him. And he now sits on the highest throne in heaven. It would be pretty hard for some kind of ethereal spirit to do any of those things. Ghosts can't really do things like that. Only a person with a body can do those things. And scripture is clear that believers are going to get resurrected bodies just like Jesus's. Do you see what this means? It means that at the second coming, we're not only going to get things we've never had. We're also going to get back all the things we lost. All of them. We'll get them all back. When Johnny Erickson was 18 years old, she was in an accident that left her a quadriplegic. She was paralyzed from the neck down. And so she had to go to church in a wheelchair. And when she was still trying to come to grips with this horrible accident, she was going to an Episcopalian church where the priest every week at a certain part of the service would call everyone to kneel. And that just drove home to her the fact that she was in a wheelchair. And so every time the priest called the people to kneel, she would burst out in tears. This went on for months. Until one day the priest called everyone to kneel, and she was about to burst into tears when for some reason she started saying the prayer the priest was leading the church in. It was a prayer about the resurrection. And then it hit her like a ton of bricks. She wrote a book about her experience, about her story, and in that book, she writes this, quote, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get up on my feet and I'm going to dance. 
She goes on to say, quote, no other religion promises us new bodies. Not just new minds and hearts. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live, end quote. Don't you see? The resurrection means we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be afraid. We can hope in our suffering. We can take risks with our lives. We can do hard things. We are free to give our time and our money to spread the good news of Jesus. Because we literally have nothing to lose. Because what we do lose, we're getting it all back. We're getting it all back, baby. That is the hope of the resurrection. To put it another way, when people ask you, what is the hope Christianity offers? You can tell them that Jesus himself gives us the answer to that question throughout the New Testament. John Piper sums it up really well for us. John Piper says this is Jesus' answer for the hope of Christianity. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I will take it up again. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed, and in three days he will rise from the dead. And I will never die again. I will be an eternal high priest by the power of an indestructible life. All authority in heaven and on earth will be mine. I will be king over all kings, lord over all lords. I will be alive forever, forever and evermore, and in my hand will be the keys of death and hell. I will sit with my father on his throne, and I will have in my hand a check signed with my blood for the perfect, completed, irreversible purchase of my bride. I will be surrounded by billions of angels and saints, all crying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and wisdom and power and riches forever and ever. And from my throne, I will build my church on earth, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when the time is full, I will come in power and glory, and I will fill the new heavens and the new earth with the wonders of my glory. And I will say to my bride, now enter the joy of your bridegroom. So, do you see what the resurrection means? Do you see what it means for you? It means people can't hurt you. Demons can't hurt you. Poverty can't hurt you. Suffering can't hurt you. And even death can't hurt you. Because of the resurrection, you can say with the poet George Herbert, death used to be my executioner, but the gospel has made him for me just a gardener. Death is just a gardener for me.